Good evening and welcome to this evening's edition of the Ecology Hour. We're really lucky this evening to be able to have a conversation with Dr. Adina Marinlander, the UC Cooperative Extension Specialist and Adjunct Professor at UC Berkeley in the Environmental Sciences, Policy and Management Department. Adina is also founder of the UC California Naturalist Program and recently had a new book published alongside co-author Brendan Bula. The book is called Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California. We're going to explore with Adina some of the conversations around climate change and the focus on collective action that is reflected in the book. I started by asking Adina a little about her academic life and experience and how the knowledge that she has built up along the way maybe can provide some level of frustration um, when viewed with the lack of action that we see relating to climate change. Yeah, well, my history with understanding climate change or knowing about climate change actually dates back to pretty much the time that scientists were warning, started to warn people about climate change, which was in the 80s, really where it became something that scientists were talking to government officials about concern. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, it still really wasn't on the fore of my thinking Mm -hmm. as a sort of budding conservation scientist. Mm -hmm. I did have the good fortune of taking a freshman seminar with Roger Ravel, Now, Roger Ravel is the scientist who, of course, started Scripps Institute, also started uh, Ravel College at UC San Diego, Mm -hmm. but also set up the Mauna Loa Carbon Dioxide Monitoring Station in Hawaii, where we have the Keeling Curve data from. Mm -hmm. And you would think maybe sitting in the room with Roger Ravel, which was such a gift to me, uh, 20, maybe I was more like 18, um, you know, you think he'd be maybe talking about carbon dioxide and warming. But in fact, his focus as he projected for us what was coming down as an environmental global concern was fresh water. He was very clear that we would be now in water wars over freshwater resources. What he didn't completely digest, or at least did not share with us, is sort of the multiplier effect of climate change and how that would then really accelerate his fears of the lack of available freshwater resources for most of the world. So continuing on in my education, I worked with other just amazing scientists. And I think we are, you know, our influences. And even those influences who were then quite rigorous quantitative ecologists uh, working on biodiversity conservation, which was my focus as a student and continues to be my focus. Uh, It's what gets me out of bed every day is the fact that I love biodiversity and I want it to persist way beyond our influence. that also that the magnifying effect or the fact that climate change was going to impact biodiversity and accelerate the rate of extinction was not again sort of the focus of my work throughout the 90s and even coming into my job with the University of California here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I was very much focused and still appreciate and still do work on land use change. That's kind of what was in our face, you know, from my work in Madagascar with deforestation and its impacts on uh, lemurs to coming to Hopland and seeing vineyard expansion and its impacts on oak woodlands, rural residential development. You know, it was sort of like what's in your face, you know, for me was land use change. And then the catastrophes hit didn't it? For all of us, I think, more recently. So then we move into this period of uh, drought, extreme drought, fire, uh, the redefining of what we call now an atmospheric river, um, classifying atmospheric rivers up to five, you know, looking at storms. So we start to see the catastrophic effects of climate change kick in in the in the 2000s and now i sort of see climate as ever as influencing everything and my work continues to work on how we prevent extinction which now relates to climate resilience and in an example of that might be our work in corridor ecology where we're looking at habitat connectivity well, we were looking at that problem from the perspective of habitat fragmentation and habitat loss, and then we moved into that work as it relates to what is a climate smart corridor, right, mm -hmm. um, to building resilience so we can have species actually shift ranges, mm -hmm. a much more longer time horizon um intervention mm -hmm. on behalf of biodiversity. Yeah, which so. which I, I I've enjoyed just reading through that in your book um which and i want to get more deeply into the content of your book but before we do that i do want to take one step back because the other program that i know i've benefited from hugely and many others have that you were instrumental in making happen was the california naturalist program and your 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 interest in biodiversity what you've just shared with us about concerns about extinction that seems to me to have probably been one of the seeds of creating that California naturalist program and wanting to share with others um, a level of literacy of our, our local California ecosystems. I, I'd love if you'd like to share anything about that program at all. Sure, yeah. Well, in coming to Hopland Research and Extension Center and working as a cooperative extension specialist, one of the things that became clear uh, was that the public seems to have an insatiable interest in natural history. I mean, we couldn't fill grass classes and, you know, people want to come learn butterflies. And it also brings together, I, I thought it was interesting how it bring together a cross section of folks, mm -hmm. you know, so it wasn't, it was, you couldn't put naturalists in a box. Mm -hmm. They come from all walks of life. And that was enjoyable to see and to understand. And I, to be honest, I didn't have the courage to start UC California Naturalist initially. I was told about other statewide naturalist programs, and I just thought California is so huge, diverse, institutionally complex. I mean, we are our own powerhouse of an economy and society. Uh, how could I successfully launch something statewide like that? 
Um, but fortunately, I was surrounded by other people who had the courage and interest as well. <laughs> and they really helped to, you know, say, let's do this. Yeah. So really, you know, like anything California Naturalist is, it takes a village. But mm -hmm. then it also takes a lot of, um, I guess, grit and tenacity. Mm -hmm. And I think I do have a lot of that. So oh even goodness. while people were championing, many were falling by the wayside and doing other things and going on with their lives. And I was like, oh, the little energizer that could, you know, <laughs> my name's on this. We can't let it fall. You know, we need yeah. to do this. This is a good idea. And fortunately, you know, then the tide changed and the financial changes in the state and the university and Different people came on board, and and thanks to those people, like our current director, Greg Ira, and all of our staff, and I mean, they sort of started picking up the balls that were falling off the table, and <laughs> we now have a real, yeah. really successful program. Yeah, and I do just want to shout out to all of the California naturalists who are listening, because in Mendocino County, I know we have a number of them um, outside in the rest of California. There's a, this incredible group now of... Um, you know, folks who are kind of connected and sharing information about their, their local um, wildlife and local natural history. So. Yeah, absolutely. No one I'd rather hang out with more than the California naturalists. So, right. completely agree. Them. <laughs> <laughs> so it brings us nicely, though, to there's this hard work that you've done, your energizer bunny that you've been through bringing the California naturalist program. And then you've not only done that, but you've brought that on and shaped by some of the things you just described to us, created another program and written this fantastic book um, about climate stewards. Um, so I just, I, I, is there any, did, did, the pro, did the work with the California Naturalist Program then kind of bring you to say, okay, now it's time for this? I always envision California naturalists to be a constituency for nature. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't make everyone comfortable. <laughs> but I do envision it as bigger than a course. And there are some folks who do, who are sort of environmental problem solvers or who gravitate toward kind of civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And what better topic to engage in than climate, mm -hmm. right, than climate change? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it was a natural for us, no pun intended, mm -hmm. for us to think about a course that and program that uh, would address climate change more specifically mm -hmm. and what one can do. Mm -hmm. I had the good fortune of working with Greg Ira on that. There was a sometimes... You know, we're looking for opportunities. We have an idea. We're looking for opportunities, and those opportunities spur on the idea even further. And there was a, a federal grant that we saw that would lend itself to supporting something like this. In the end, it was a California naturalist who made this program happen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> because while we were sort of putting in this failed federal grant and thinking about this sort of quietly... Uh -huh. Uh, a California naturalist came to me and said, have you ever thought about doing a climate program? Mm -hmm. uh, 
she really enjoyed the California Naturalist program. I think she saw the power of the collective effort there mm-hmm. and what could be done. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, maybe saw a little bit of grit in myself <laughs> and mm-hmm. said, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. we could do this together. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, she remains anonymous, but uh, she very much made that happen. And, and that's just another sort of shout out to the naturalist because we know that there are many people in the naturalist community who are huge doers in their community start and you see them in the book right Mm -hmm. like I Mm -hmm. often was talking to naturalists you know about the whole program they started on gleaning in their community or the entire you know Watts mud farms that they run I mean it's just amazing what what these folks are doing and one of them helped start California uh, helped start climate stewardship so um I did want to pick up on that because I think when you hear or maybe you hear the title of this book it might not become instantly recognizable to people that this is a book of hope because um, whilst we are talking about a subject that um, it, it has a lot of trauma associated with it for us now. And I think particularly in Mendocino County with um, you know the wildfires we've experienced, um, it's very easy to want to bury your head turn away from this but this book I just want to reassure folks who are listening that from the very beginning this book does not shy away from the how huge this issue is but it does provide examples of people on collective action and hope um and and so I when you've just explained that from the California naturalist that really rings through from having read through the book as well um so One thing I just wanted to bring from that is you mention in the book that really what is going to help us respond is not short-term individual actions, but long-term multi-generational societal engagement, which is huge, right? But it is what's needed. Um, And so I'm interested... There were practices in developing the Climate Stewards Program and in writing this book that um, um, communication practices, educational practices that are proven to have a positive effect and to help us to feel like, hey, this is something that we can still have an impact on. So I'd love, would you be willing to share some of those kind of communication tools, things that you found have been successful on a topic that can sometimes just seem so huge and impossible to deal with. Well, the fact that you got through the book and seem to have enjoyed it, I'll consider that successful. <laughs> That'll be our measure of success for the moment because we don't know how successful the book you know, will be, but I'll, I'll take that and run with it. <laughs> That's my critical science hat, you know. Where are the metrics <laughs> of success? <laughs> anyway, um, I also want to say I'm glad you feel hopeful after reading the book. And I sort of think about it as a book that shares joy Mm -hmm. and that that joy comes from people's experience of working together. Uh, And as we know, you know, you can really easily sink into climate despair and climate depression. But I did not find that from the people I talked to Mm -hmm. because these folks were specifically chosen because they were working with others, Mm -hmm. as you said, at a slightly larger scale than maybe an individual behavior change. Mm -hmm. They weren't telling me about how they bought one less plane ticket this year. Not to say that we shouldn't all buy one less plane ticket this year, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's not what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think through their working with other community members, they were very joyful. Mm 
And I, I hope that that joy comes through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the kind of action that we need. And, and sometimes I point to a simple example of we're not talking about putting solar panels on your individual home. Not that that's mm-hmm. not a good idea if you're in a position to do that. But we're really talking about setting up a community, um, you know, clean energy aggregated Mm -hmm. association where everyone can have access and hopefully affordable access to clean energy Mm -hmm. and where we become collective responsible buyers of energy for our whole community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of a compare and contrast of where where we lean to in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as lessons learned, and I do have to credit many scholars, including a colleague of mine, Sarah Mae Nelson, who helps, who basically runs climate mm-hmm. stewards. She is the woman behind the whole sort of course implementation of working with our instructors. Uh, shared thoughts on, on how we communicate about climate change. Some of our science advisors are social scientists like Susie Moser and others who work in this field. Faith mm-hmm. Cairns is a great climate communicator. You know, we have lots of people mm-hmm. I'm surrounded by who are, are really good at this. So mm-hmm. I just, I really want to say I'm, I'm on a rapid learning trajectory along with everyone else on how we become trusted messengers and effective messengers Mm -hmm. and sort of follow Catherine Hayhoe's advice that we need to be talking about it and talking about it some more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and I also learned from Brendan Bueller, the, the the science writer who helped to make the narratives come alive. Mm -hmm. So Brendan is a, is a, is gifted at that. If you laugh when you read the book, you can thank Brendan because he is the person who makes the joke land and he's not afraid to tell me when my joke's not landing (laughs) (laughs) with a big red pen. (laughs) But but the reader is grateful. Um, So that that's one of the things, Mm -hmm. right? A narrative. So the research shows, and there's an excellent paper by a fellow named Palm and colleagues who came out recently with a paper about the fact that when they expose the study participants to reading a narrative as compared to sort of deductive scientific writing, they're going to read twice as long Mm -hmm. and retain twice as much. <laughs> so scientists can't afford not to tell stories no, <laughs> if we're going to get our message. Tried and tested, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, and Brendan would constantly remind me that we are showing, not telling people what to do. That's another thing. He he direct quote Adina telling people what to do is for most people like fingernails on a chalkboard. And now there'll be a lot of people in this audience who will not know even what a chalkboard and fingernails sound like because that is a very old way of teaching. (laughs) But you'll have to trust us, right? That it's not sound good. Um, And so that, you know, that we try to weave the science in. Um, We also are taking from this, point that we know from climate communication experts that and adult education experts that things need to resonate and things that are in that are place-based resonate for people so some a story where that's taking place in a in an area that folks can connect with um, like California and being in California is going to resonate better than if we draw on lessons, let's say, of palm farming in Florida. You know, we just sort of like, 
never lived in Florida or, you know, so it's more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then there's the, who's telling the story, mm-hmm. you know, so there's telling the story, mm-hmm. what's in the story has to resonate. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hopefully be enjoyable and fun and even a little yeah. funny. Yeah. And then who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. And we know also about trusted messengers. Right. And that we do sort of um, form our opinions and and ways of being and knowing based on others who we feel share our identity and values, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we see this to a fault in our political bipolar, right? Like we see that as a problem. We're in one camp. We can't relate to the other camp because they're not my identity. Mm-hmm. On a more positive note, um, we use this to say we need more women in science so that girls can learn that women can be in science and we need more people of color so that everyone can feel that there's opportunity to pursue their dreams in the movies and, you know, we, we yeah. understand this. And so, of course, in the book, we're trying to uh, understand what all kinds of communities are doing and all kinds of people are how they're organizing their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether in El Monte, in Los Angeles, knocking on doors and trying to deal with pollution and mm-hmm. safety and, you know, things like that, or whether you're up in, uh, you know, growing walnuts and out of woodland. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's a few things that... Um, we mentioned that this was not a book about individual actions. And I think sometimes with the individual action, there is this elitism that can come across as well, because you could only do certain things if you have the, the funds and the opportunities to do that. But this is very much thinking, I, I, you know, when you've just described these trusted messengers, looking at trusted messengers across all communities, because this issue is not going to, I mean, there are going to be groups who it's going to hit harder. Um, and that is also recognized in the book. But I think in describing these trusted messengers, I, I think I'm right in saying that you hope that this program is going to reach out not just to those who have the funds and the opportunities to make their own individual actions, but to something far broader than that. Am, am I right in thinking that's important? Absolutely. I mean, we have a big foot push into workforce education. And you know that because you work with the California Conservation Corps here in Hopland Research and Extension Center in these courses. Uh, and there are many people in the who want to enter the workforce Uh, and work in the environment, care about the environment, have that value. They haven't always been appreciated as holding those values, Mm -hmm. but they do. And they have every right to uh, work in that sector, have the opportunity for education in that sector. And also, even if it's a work that might mostly be about physical labor, require physical labor, I really want, I'm trying to honor intellectual curiosity of everyone mm-hmm. and believe, and we, I think we're learning this more and more about work, that we're all mission-oriented. And we want to believe in the mission. We want to understand nature. If we're out fighting the fire line or digging a water well, you know, 
what, how does the hydrology work? How do surface water, groundwater interactions mm-hmm. work? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think both through California Naturalist and Climate Stars, we're very interested in partnering with workforce programs, community colleges, all kinds of on-ramps to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter what kind of sector that work is. Mm-hmm. There are benefits to deepening one's ability to observe nature, to feel more mm-hmm. interdependence with nature, interconnected with naturalists, yeah. and all of those things. And I think it's a complement mm-hmm. to what uh, some of these workforce programs are providing. Yeah. And I think it comes across in the stories that you do tell of the groups who've taken action and that everybody has capacity to be making these different changes and whatever um, group that they associate with, right? And that, that's hugely valuable to have this diversity of trusted messengers sharing yeah. this information. And I think especially during this pandemic, it's been so isolating mm-hmm. And what really was a take home for me was people saying they had worse climate despair. We interviewed one woman in the Bay Area who literally was not sleeping. Oh, you know, she just was so worried about the next generation and what climate change presented them. Mm-hmm. And she got involved with Mothers Out Front. And through that involvement, which is a climate action group that mm-hmm. takes on community level projects, evaluates those projects very strategically, mm-hmm. decides what they're going to do and gets it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that totally shifted. Mm-hmm. Her attention completely shifted to what she was doing with Mothers Out Front mm-hmm. and that empowerment that that felt mm-hmm. took away. Mm-hmm. It's, it didn't change the realities that we're faced mm-hmm. with, but mm-hmm. it, it took away. And I think the other thing is we're talking about this collective action. We talked about maybe uh, frustrations. Uh, we, I think we're all frustrated with the lack of action by nation states, right? We're coming out of the Conference of Parties, the COP26. And once again, we're seeing it's very wishy-washy uh, commitments to um, fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the peop- the folks that are going to fix the problem <laughs> are at, at the much, lo- you know, at the community scale, mm-hmm. the regional scale that, you know, mm-hmm. where we collectively get together and execute mm-hmm. our, you know, our desires and wishes and actions. And I, I the story you just told of the lady who was not sleeping, um, I have to bring that also back to the fact that um, so some of the issues relating to climate change are certainly traumatizing for our communities. And when you are feeling traumatized, that's a very, very difficult place to learn anything from, right? You can't, your brain is in shutdown mode. And I think that's something else that is really at the core of both how the book is put together and the course itself to recognize that when we're in fear, that's not a place we can, it's hard for us to move from that. Um, is that something that you struggled with at all? As you know, we, we can talk about the, the, the joy and the, the jokes in here, they're all there and it's great, but there is, there is you know, something which is fearful that we're, we're tackling here. Yeah, and all good humor is, has the, um, sort of traumatic side to it doesn't it right you know you're laughing but you're crying Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. I mean the best of Mm -hmm. humor is sort of a laugh cry experience um yeah so 
I'm glad you mentioned the course. And again, uh, Sarah Mae Nelson's, you know, expertise in part of this is bringing together that trauma-informed and awareness mm -hmm. that goes into the program itself, the courses itself, that really start with relationship building and sharing experience and sharing feelings around climate. Mm -hmm. And then moves into how do we talk about it and how do we engage. And then moves into... Mm -hmm. Uh, climate climate science and context, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then there's the science around what we're experiencing in California and how does that resonate with the... And then lastly, how does that res resonate to the actions needed and self-defining, creating those actions mm -hmm. around one's individual community resilience. Mm -hmm. Every community needs different sort of strategies mm -hmm. and approaches. So that's kind of the flow of the course. Uh, and I think that I've always felt that the counter to fear is love. Mm -hmm. So that oversimplifies everything, but I think it still resonates with me. And when I think about love, I think about connection, relationship. And so starting from a place where we're sharing and building relationship is a nice counter to the fear, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. And allows mm -hmm. us to then move forward mm -hmm as a cohort of climate stewards together yeah. to explore mm -hmm. and, but with the acknowledgement that we're all in a, mm -hmm. a place of needing yeah. climate therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But that's and we're, we're working with a group on that, right? The time is 7.30 and you are listening to the Ecology Hour here on KZYX. We're just having a conversation with Dr. Adina Merenlender, the UC Cooperative Extension Specialist and Adjunct Professor, UC Berkeley ESPM, and also the co-author of the book, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California. One of the other things that came across to me strongly in here, which um, shouldn't have surprised me, but I think sometimes still too often we think about the climate crisis and we still kind of put it in a box of, Oh, how it's impacting our ecosystems or kind of one element. But you have to bring in the social layer as well. So these this kind of scale of looking at the issue of a kind of local community action does take into account what are the social issues that your community are dealing with as well. Um, and the, the kinds of examples that you give in the book of people taking action, they are working in the kind of system that they're in right their own local um ecosystem and their all their their social system too um was that something mm -hmm. that you, you you were picking up as you worked through the book or i think that's interesting to hear you speak about that because i don't think i have thought about that as much but in reflection, I can see it. Mm -hmm. For instance, we think about surf riders, yeah. a bunch of surfers and ocean lovers who are very politically active. Mm -hmm. um, they are big into civic engagement and setting new policy and making change in, in, in rooms of power. Yeah. I mean, who would think that a lot of people out in the ocean would be in really effective at getting their constituency. I mean, they are a real constituency for the ocean, you know, <laughs> but they gravitate around fun times out in the water, right? Whether they're paddle boarding or surfing or getting together and walking on the beach. Um, that is, yeah, that is a very different context and a different way of mobilizing than 
maybe a contrasting group of people out in Palm Springs who get together in homes mm-hmm. and also mobilize policy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also said about what they do, like no leaf, bl- um, yeah. motorized, you know, leaf blowers, yeah. no uh, putting up so requiring new development to have solar plant or setting up a, mm-hmm. a community mm-hmm. uh, aggregated energy mm-hmm. um Organization, so they're also getting lots of things done mm-hmm. um, in in a style, in a way, with others that really worked for mm-hmm. uh, older retirees in Palm Springs. There's not a one size fits all, yeah. right? That, that's what I really felt like. That's what I get. Oh, okay, good. It can fit whatever your community, right? Your and maybe it's. The, I hope there's enough actions in the book that people can see actions that resonate that would be useful for them, mm-hmm. because I have been asked, and it always surprised me. Before we started Climate Stewards, I was asked by Rabbi Margaret Holub, "What is a small community like Mendocino supposed to do about the problem?" That was a question she asked me, and it was probably been five years since she asked me that question, you know, and I looked kind of stuck, like I didn't have an answer. (laughs) I was like, oh, you know, they're just asking me because I'm a conservation scientist, hadn't started climate stirs or anything. Um, And now I I actually gave her a copy of the book and I said, finally, I think have a reasonable answer for you, you know, so I'm hoping that... uh, that people will find the way that they that works for them and their communities to get things done, but that the, some of the examples in the book will say, "Oh, right, we could start a gleaning group, we could start an underburn group, yeah. we could," you know. So because mm-hmm. sometimes people do need a method. Absolutely, they, they. I think they do want to. They're going to. Ex, they're going to choose what's important to them. They're the best to do that. They often, and they're certainly the best to figure out how they're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. sometimes they need a little bit of mm-hmm. guidelines. And I figure if Rabbi Margaret Holub needs guidelines, that everyone needs guidelines <laughs> because she's a really smart cookie, you know. But again, but, this is building this constituency of people that can help each other, right? And be can learning from each other about what they've been doing. So there's no one size fits all, but there might be others who you can perhaps get guidance from of, what's worked for a similar group, right? Right. I really appreciated. Obi Kaufman did. We're so grateful to him for doing the cover and wonderful black and white paintings throughout mm-hmm. the book, which are meant to be little art interludes to mm-hmm. take a breath. Mm-hmm. Um, one cannot help but connect with breath when they look at Obi's work, I think. Um, it's very grounding. And he held up the book the other day and said, this is the handbook. And what I think he was saying is, on what to do. And it's not to say that every action is in here at all, but lots are, and hopefully in a way that people feel they see potentially themselves or people that are like themselves doing these things so they're not insurmountable. Yeah. I want to change tack a little bit because I think the other thing that's important to recognize that's in this book is that those stories are all born out of of, of science and you link them and interweave climate science at a local level and you know larger level through the book as well and it, it's all together you know that's what's wonderful it alternates between these two things constantly so um some of those um examples um were very local which was really exciting and since this is kzyx and um we're talking to many of the mendocino residents here i thought it would be lovely just to touch on some of those um elements that you you brought in so I, I i know that clear lake is an incredible body of water 
Um, but this brought that home to me even more. And you talked a little bit about how um, the studies of Clear Lake can actually help us to see what the future may hold in terms of a warming, a changing climate. Um, it, would you be able to express that better than I can? Um, right. Well, just a shout out to Climate Action Mendocino, Eileen Mitro, and everyone. Um, bravo. Uh, you're in the book. Certainly are. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I always knew that I wanted to start this book in a clear lake. It's a deep time story, isn't it? Where we see this period of dry, what they call the driest, which is actually named after a period, is actually named after the plant mm -hmm. that was more common. It sounds like I thought it was like, oh, because it was dry, dry us. <laughs> this is period in geologic time. <laughs> Fortunately, my husband is a botanist. <laughs> Gary Dicey says to me, it's the plant that was prevalent at that time. Okay. So, yes. Clear Lake and the course taken by Cindy Louie and other scientists, David Wall, and people that I had the good fortune of speaking with, um, those cores of sediment reveal periods of time in which we had drier periods and warmer periods. Um, the other thing is the human history there mm -hmm. is just amazing. I mean, people dating way back before 15,000 years, um, stewards of Clear Lake, Time memoriam, right? Like mm. just amazing. Mm. And the artifacts are quite well preserved. So that understand there's a lot of science and, and, and archaeology and understanding how people adapted to cha radical mm. changes in the vegetation. I mean, from conifer to grasslands to oak woodlands. Um, so these huge shifts that we're expecting under our climate forecast models. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's this wonderful place. I mean, you could really spend and people have a lifetime mm -hmm. looking at Clear Lake and its neighboring and its watershed, let's mm -hmm. just say, in the tr in the transformations that have occurred in the types of vegetation that were there, how people adapted to those changes in vegetation. I mean, the bounty that the woodlands brought on allowed for a huge population boom. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and a totally different social structure around those resources and what was going on at that time. So, yeah, a lot of, and I should say, uh, fuel for the fire because we also have the connection with fire, right? So, and I heard an interesting person named Bob Neal, who's a California naturalist and wonderful land steward in Sonoma County. And he mentioned this point that I hadn't really thought much back. He goes, what were we thinking? Like he meaning we in Sonoma County, Clear Lake's been burning like every year. And then we don't wake up until the fire comes through Santa Rosa. You know, I mean, it's a spitting distance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We're yep. so this local, not, right? Yeah. We're yeah. sort of in our own worlds and Clear Lake. So Clear Lake is both a window into the deep time past mm -hmm. and was showing us the impacts of extreme weather and climate and fire yeah. in it, 
you know, day, you know, years before we were waking up to it here in Hopland or waking up to it in Santa Rosa. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and then we have a wonderful Pomo people who live there now, who are doing incredible things, who are the keepers, you know, of an of native fish and traditions yeah, and story. cultural practices. Yeah. So you just you have it all. And the last thing I want to say about Clear Lake is that. In thinking about sharing this book with all of California, we might take it for granted that those of us in Mendocino County have some sense of the history of Clear Lake and the beauty of Clear Lake and the tragedies that have happened there, massacre and toxic water. I mean, many terrible things. Um, but the rest of Californians, I would argue, are kind of, no offense, clueless on Clear Lake. So it was a fun way to, I mean, we, we want to put some, this, the book, you know, had to be short and sort of easy to get through. So, of course, tons of content is on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to say it was it was nice to be able to share a bit about Clear Lake mm-hmm. with Californians at large. Because yeah, no, I, I don't think it's well known. Yeah. You know? Even nationally, it's got, you know, significance. It's, it's yeah, I, I really appreciated seeing that, that conversation in there and, um, one of the other things that so I enjoyed recognizing the resiliency of humans over this huge deep time that we're looking at but also recognizing that things were difficult as as there was change one of the things that definitely is recognized in there is that the speed of change that we are looking at now is hard for us who are actually incredibly resilient, right? And able to be able to make changes, but also for for so many species. Um, and so you talk a little bit about um, how plants are affected, um, and you 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 use this term um, that I just feel like recently with the the rains that we so were, were so welcome that we got recently, but it really was like that that atmospheric river. Wow. You felt it, right? It felt like, wow, this is just all coming at the same time. And so how um, these different species um, can respond to that sudden change. And you use this term precipitation whiplash in the book um, that describes, you know, how how do plants possibly respond to this, like sudden changes? Um, Again, would you mind just filling that out a little bit more for our listeners? Sure. And I think that term came from my interview with Susan Harrison, who's a wonderful ecologist who's been working in Lake County at McLaughlin Natural Reserve, which is a UC facility, um, studying uh, herbaceous plant communities there for many years. Uh, She also is probably the best-known researcher on serpentine plant communities, uh, which are have always been native plant refugia in California. Um, anyway, so her work on the influence of or la- a lack there of lack of precipitation and that influence on the species communities that she studies and overarching just to be like um, cut to the chase or be like the the spoiler of her story is that the plants that have these larger leaf areas the fleshier larger leaves are um, blinking out of her sights uh, because they're just not as drought tolerant right so she's seeing this the the influence of the drying even near-term drying climate mm-hmm. influenced mm-hmm. attributed to climate change drying mm-hmm. on these plant communities um 
And it brings us a little bit back to understanding the Mediterranean climate, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I spent a lot of time in lecturing over the years working in watersheds in the North Coast is trying to kind of illustrate the variability that we inherently have in Mediterranean climates. Mm -hmm. And so we have very, we have strong seasonality. So some people think, well, it's predictable. They're long dry and we have a wet season. And that's fairly predictable that we will have a long dry and we will have a wet season. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of water that we get during the wet season, when the onset and the termination of that wet season is highly variable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Year to year. Putting climate before climate change mm-hmm. comes into Just the picture. Mediterranean Just climate. Yeah. Normally we experience the greatest variation, what we call interannual variation, than anyone in the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that kind of defines how we manage water, how we live, where we spend our summer vacation. You know, it defines a lot about about living in California, the vegetation that we see. Um, and climate change, that's where we can talk about that multiplier effect. What it's doing is hard to believe that we're actually going to get even more variable. That's what's hard to believe. Um, just because we already were living with a lot of uncertainty. So these poor farmers, they're already struggling with the uncertainty that's mm-hmm. inherent in growing in the Mediterranean region. Mm-hmm. And now on top of it, we're getting um, even more rain falling in atmospheric rivers and less rain as kind of gently regular regular rain. Mm-hmm. And that trajectory is forecasted into the future is increasing mm-hmm. and continue to increase thanks to the work of at people mm-hmm. at Scripps and stuff who really mm-hmm. are modeling this shift from mm-hmm. gentle rainstorm, kind of we're having cloudy, rainy weather to very um, zonal flows in mm-hmm. atmospheric rivers. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing this elongation. We know the dry season, right? Even birds and mm-hmm. butterflies and everything sort of shifting to earlier arrivals and mm-hmm. sometimes are disjointed from their plants and mm-hmm. hosts. And um, we're also seeing, fortunately, we didn't see it this year, but we, we have seen longer fire seasons into, you know, right through to December. So, yes, uh, it can feel like a whiplash mm-hmm. and it can also feel very uncertain yeah. right and I think we're all feeling that this year yeah. where we're wondering will the rain return yes that's right is that it mm-hmm. yeah no so I, although in, in the, the the story that we were describing there was a lot of talk about how this was affecting the the serpentine the serpentine plants um I felt like that's that's a term that I really feel like I, I feel that from just living um, in these times right that kind of whiplash feeling of mm. the changing climate and what we're seeing at what you were talking about, a Mediterranean climate, and then layer on top of that, the climate change impacts too. So I knew that we'd have way more to talk about than we possibly could in an hour. Um, But I think it's time for us to just come to um, a couple of things that I noticed at the very beginning of the book and at the very end of the book. Um, And we already talked about the importance of narrative and storytelling and in sharing some of this information um right at the beginning of the book um the introduction is actually written by greg saris um, the chairman of the federated indians of great Rancheria, 
Um, and he recounts a tale from Mabel McKay, who was a renowned Poma basket maker and medicine woman. Um, and if it's okay with you, I just want to share um, that little piece that it's certainly worth um, reading the whole section though. Um, Mabel said, everything's going to burn, she said. Everything's going to go dry. There will be no escaping it. Going to burn, top to bottom. Even the ocean, it will go hot. That's my latest dream. What I've seen in my dream. We're coming to that point. What do I do? I asked. What am I supposed to do? Mabel listened, then immediately broke into laughter. She seemed to be making fun of me. That's cute. What am I supposed to do? No, Mabel, I'm serious. She became quiet and after a moment answered, You live the best way you know how. What else? And I just wanted to um, come back to that. I found it very moving, that whole section, the whole book I found um, really fabulous. But how do you live the best way you know how, given all the information that you have? <laughs> I think that relationship has really come forward. Maybe it's also my maturing age. Mm -hmm you know, to really valuing that and trying to really redirect energy towards that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure my individual actions are that relevant. Um, I think I would say, and I want to I reiterate something you said, Hannah, which mm -hmm. is we can sometimes try to uh, one-up each other mm -hmm. or feel bad. You know, when we've bought something that has way more packaging that we realized or all the wrong packaging, mm. we can just, I can just, and I think many people just feel terrible mm. about that action. Mm. Um, I, we talk about this in the Climate Stories program. We were worried that people would sit around in a climate class and just constantly share mm. the ways in which you can save, you know, using less plastic bags. And, and that's nice to share what we do. But we, we don't want to people to feel alienated, to feel that, well, I didn't do that. You know, I, I forgot my bags. Mm -hmm. I, you know, that can also have this sort of downside. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just say that at the same time, we do want to try to walk the talk. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there are places in my life where I have said, I'm going to walk the talk here mm -hmm. and take an individual behavior change. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are plenty of places where I, I'm not walking the talk and I think that we shouldn't sweat that. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the deeper thing is, are we building, am I trying to build community? Even I've tried to build community among scientists too, as the president, I was president for a long time for my society where I work really hard mm -hmm. to increase those connections, community, working with the California Biodiversity Network. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to build community among stewards, trying to interact with indigenous stewardship leaders and their council. Mm -hmm. So really I would say um, I'm focused on building community mm -hmm. and relationships, walking the walk where I can walk the walk, um, but I, I'm in no, I'm, I am by no means the person who you want to follow around and see every individual action as being green. Yeah. Um, but but I, I love what you're sharing about your individual actions actually are in the group, really. That is, it's, it's um, helping us to connect and create those communities that will be making those differences. 
and that really comes across in this program so thank you for doing that um, I, I, I feel like I'm very lucky to uh, get to learn from you in that capacity um, I also want to come to the very end of the book which I found um, you, ha you, you have the last chapter is called the in the end and um, you have to reference, which is important, that you've been writing this book during the global pandemic. So as if it wasn't bad enough, right? You've had to handle that too. And there's just a little piece here that says, um, you know, we don't bring this up to say that it's hard to write stories of climate optimism during a global pandemic, although it can feel like trying to floss your teeth while standing behind an incontinent hippopotamus. Um, and, you know, I just, I just want to say credit to you for carrying this through even the, during these times. I'm also interested in what kind of comparisons you've been drawing as we've gone through this pandemic um, with how we've responded to that and how we will continue to respond to the climate crisis as well. Well, in the end chapter, and yes, uh, Brendan seems to have a thing for hippopotamuses, which is really funny. Uh, in the end, we do, in this chapter in the end, of, and the book's called Climate Stewardship, so it's sort of... Um, the cap to the book, we focus a lot on what we've learned during the pandemic, particularly around science. So we are all a little more used to hearing uh, bending the curve, right? Are we bending the curve on the pandemic? How many people have it? And are we bringing those numbers down? People are getting used to seeing charts and graphs, statistics, transmission rates, right? Um, and that, that helps us in translating all kinds of science to the public. Uh, we've also really learned the importance of public health, right? And where our failures have been around the pandemic has been around uh, capacity to handle public health crises mm -hmm. and our values or lack thereof of attention to public health. Right. I mean, look where medicine is going in the United States to individualize medicine. I mean, who doesn't want their DNA perfectly coded to the medicine that will perfectly react to them for a perfect outcome? And everybody's different. And we're recognizing that and absolutely, you know, appreciating that we are all individuals. Uh, however, meanwhile, we have a fairly large public health crisis on our hands, which our children have suffered, people like your family with like, kids home on Zoom and on and on. My kid's not going to college for a year, you know, on and on. Um, and that points to the need for collective action, doesn't it, for a collective view, a commu community responsibility. I'm wearing a mask to help others. Um, I'm getting a vaccine not just for myself but for others, uh, you know, so that is what it's going to take to address climate change, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a collective mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. um, we're mm -hmm. not, yeah. So I, 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 that's the connection in the action space. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are, there are other connections mm -hmm. around how we are mm -hmm. experiencing and addressing COVID-19 and how we are experiencing and addressing climate change that we try to cover in the last chapter yeah. and I feel like at this stage we could go down an avenue of um, thinking about the ways we've not done well and the ways that we've kind of been separated and not been thinking as a community but I think we should actually pause and recognize that you know we've dealt with this huge thing and in many ways people it's it has brought people together and we have tried to think about 
community action and to um, see that as something hopeful for yeah. how we are going to move ahead um, and not get bogged down. And I think we're appreciating our first responders and our health workers and all the people who are on the front lines. Mm -hmm. I think we are appreciating um, the injustices and systematic racism that our society continues to suffer from and mm -hmm. people of color continue to suffer from mm -hmm. and them as frontline communities in climate change and that um, poverty is the antithesis of resilience, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. So yeah. when we have people who are suffering so mm -hmm. in their right to food, right mm -hmm. to shelter, right, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, right to walk down the street mm -hmm. in peace. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? You cannot then have you... the resilience avenues that you would have otherwise. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are grappling, we are knowing how much work needs to be done in those mm -hmm. arenas, and that will help us become more resilient. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Dr. Adina Marinlinda. And um, again, a big thank you. Um, and uh, the book, Climate Stewardship, Taking Collective Action to Protect California, can be purchased online, I know. And also, I'm thinking probably through our local bookstores. Am I, do you want to share anything more about that? Yeah, great. We want to support our local bookstores, so order through them or other avenues. And... Thank you for having me on the show. I've always, I'm a big fan of the Ecology Hour, of course, being an ecologist, so it's a, a privilege to be with you yeah, today. Well, we always appreciate having you on. And also, I want to mention that we are um, setting up for the first Climate Stewards class in Mendocino County um, that will be um, organized through the Hopland Research and Extension Center. We do still have a few spaces left on that. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Marin Linda for joining us on the Ecology Hour this evening. Um, I certainly feel, having read that book and had the conversation with Dr. Merenlender, that I am more equipped than I was before to um, make some kind of a plan to understand how I can get engaged at a community level to tackle climate issues. I hope you do too. And if you would like to take that a little further, we would welcome you, of course, onto the Climate Stewards class, which will be beginning on January 5th. Um, there are eight spaces left on that class currently. And you can find out more about that class by taking a look online. You can find information by taking a look at bit.ly forward slash C-L-I-M stewards. So that's bit.ly forward slash climstewards, C-L-I-M, stewards. Thank you so much for listening to the Ecology Hour this evening, and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email hbird, h-b-i-r-d, at u-c-a-n-r dot e-d-u. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.